Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode. The leader of Britain's postal workers on organising, campaigning and defending jobs and services, plus the fight to save union learning, safety for shop workers and confronting compulsory redundancy in BT. Hello, hello, welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and in this episode, we'll be having a detailed discussion with my good friend Terry Pullinger, who is the Deputy General Secretary for the postal side of the Communication Workers Union, looking after over 100,000 workers in the postal sector. So much change in that sector from a legally backed collective agreement back in 2014 and again in 2018, the arrival of a controversial chief executive, Rico Back, who was like a wrecking ball to industrial relations, two very effective strike ballots, overwhelming majorities, and then suddenly Back disappears, COVID hits, and the whole world looks different. What to make of it all, you'll be hearing from Terry in just a little while. But first, let's have a quick look round at what's happening in the trade union world. Now, do you remember that riddle I set at the beginning of a recent Union Jews show? You know the one. What gives you over £12 back for every quid you spend? That's right, it's Union Learn, the TUC's learning and skills organisation delivering highly regarded training and education to a quarter of a million trade unionists each year. Just what's needed to deliver the skilled workforce to build back better after COVID. And just what is threatened by the axing of £11 million worth of government funding next March, ending 22 years of state support. This places partisan politics over sensible policy making and the needs of the economy, according to Fibrega's Union General Secretary Matt Rack. A spiteful, sly and vindictive act, says Keith Richmond of Asleff. Employers are also aghast. As disappointing as it is perplexing, we urge the government to rethink its decision, said Heathrow Airport. Tata Steele said the loss of the Union Learning Fund would certainly be detrimental to achieving the pace of change and future workforce skills to which our industry aspires. And the government's own Interim Director of Labour Market Enforcement and the Chief Executive of the RSA, Matthew Taylor, was typically forthright. He said, if the funding goes, it will be a tremendous loss, harming business and the economy just when training and skills are needed for economic recovery. So, as you could expect, there's a hell of a campaign gathering momentum now, including an online petition, and you can find out more by searching the hashtag SaveUnionLearning on social media, or visiting unionlearn.org.uk. Meanwhile, elsewhere, employers have been absolutely lambasted on their approach to training. There's a new CBI report out called Learning for Life, which says, over the next decade, nine in every ten workers in Britain will need to be retrained at a cost of £130 billion. Then Carolyn Fairburn, the Director General, said, a failure to act will leave businesses facing skill shortages and workers facing long-term unemployment. But a conservative think tank called Onward has called this out and challenged CBI members to put their money where their mouths are, citing a two-decade decline in the amount of firm-level training received by UK workers, 
with larger firms, the worst culprits, and younger workers hardest hit. Look, you guys over there to my right, you can argue amongst yourselves all you like, but the truth is this. Whether government or employers fund training, the same people suffer when it isn't there. First, the people who miss out on work-related education, then the productivity of the firms who don't provide it, and ultimately the economy as a whole. In the debate on training, you have the whole posse of present and future issues that we're facing or going to face. What's it going to be like post-COVID? How do we build back better? Is it for better or worse in sickness and in health? You name it, it's in this bag. That's why it matters. Although we'll be talking to the CWU's Deputy General Secretary, Terry Pullinger, in just a moment, it's actually on the telecom side of the union that there is most angst at present. The last national strike in BT was, would you believe it, over 30 years ago in 1987? Since then, until recently, there's been a 30-year industrial calm with no compulsory redundancies, despite phenomenal change in the sector and in the company. That was shattered last year when management took a decisive and destructive turn to the macho. It wasn't so much that voluntarism was abandoned by default or neglect, more that it was deliberately smashed and trashed. Get this as an illustration of what's wrong. We need to reduce headcount, says BT. The union has a think and says reluctantly, OK, well, let's look for volunteers. No, 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 says management. We know who we want to let go. Not so fast, says the union, and conducts an exercise in identifying volunteers for redundancy who have the right skills to swap with one of those identified at risk. <coughs> oh, all right, says management, reluctantly signing on the dotted line. But literally before the ink is dry... They say, hang on a minute, these are volunteers, so we're going to pay much less in compensation. Talk about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Well, it gets worse. So much worse that the union is now balloting members in BT technology to test the appetite for industrial action, a sort of pre-strike, pre-ballot, if you will. The ballot closes this Thursday, 29th of October. So if you're listening to this and you can vote and haven't voted, pull your finger out, make sure you do. Visit cw.org for more info on the campaign and the ballot itself. Now, one news item I saw, I don't know if you saw it too, involved a shopper who post-lockdown had gone into a supermarket in Wales and started ripping off the barriers that the staff had erected to make sure that shoppers don't inadvertently buy non-essential goods, which of course is, is not allowed under the current the current arrangements, and did so with with quite some aggression, lots of shouting and swearing and ranting and raving along the lines of why can't I buy what the effing hell I want to buy sort of thing. And and that did put me in mind of Usdor's campaign for a new law making it an offence to abuse or threaten shop workers. Now, uh, the, the petition in support of this new law got 50, 60,000 signatures. It went into government. Government looked at it and said, no, we're not going to pass a new law because existing laws are good enough. But that kind of misses the point, doesn't it? It misses the point that Usdor were moved to act to defend their members in this way because threats and abuse of shop workers have more than doubled during the pandemic. And no one goes to work to get abused or, or threatened. Nick Island, who's Usdor's divisional officer, said that we are absolutely clear that it's not the responsibility of shop workers to enforce new arrangements and it's up to the public to follow rules. We also remind customers that they should wear a face covering in store, observe social distancing, shop alone if possible, only buy essential items and pay by card if they can. It's important that we all work together in these difficult times to help the country through this appalling pandemic. 
Nick could have added, of course, that there is a duty and obligation on employers to ensure safe systems of work and an obligation on government to make sure that they think through the consequences of the legislation or the regulations that they propose. I'm not saying it's easy. No one's saying it's easy. But but Nick is absolutely right when he added to his remarks by saying, we urge customers to respect shop workers who are there to help keep the country fed. Abuse should not be part of their job. Here, here. Now to our special guest. Terry Pollinger is the Deputy General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. He looks after the union's 100,000 plus postal members. There are two DGSs in the CWU. Uh, Terry's colleague is Andy Kerr, who looks after the Telecoms and Financial Services membership. Terry's been the DGS for about five years now. He's been a national officer for 20 years. And I'm very proud to say that I was once his branch secretary when we were both members of the CWU officers branch. You won't find a more genuine spokesperson for our movement than Terry. So I'm delighted to welcome him to Union Jews. Terry Pullinger, Deputy General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. Very good to see you again. Thanks for making time for this. No problem. Good to see you, Simon. I think those from outside the CWU will look at the union and think of it as a very strong union, but built on very sound foundations, which I think is a fair impression. But I remember at the time in 2014, and then again in 2018, when the union entered a legally binding collective agreement with Royal Mail as the largest employer, there were eyebrows raised. What was the, what was the thinking and the importance of having that legal status to the agreement? Well, first off, I think our perception of being a strong union is the fact that we are still heavily focused on workplace trade unionism. So we have certainly uh, in uh, in rural Mail, we have a rep in every workplace on every shift. And I think that's been the foundation, really, for us being out mm. to protect our people. If you, do, if you look through the, the era that we've certainly, that I've operated in, I think that's been key. And I think um, not not having that in other workplaces is possibly what's weakened uh, the trade union's impact. And we all know that where you've got decent terms and conditions and decent pensions and things like that, nine times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, that's because there's a trade union in there. For sure, uh, for sure. Looking after people. So what happened to us was obviously we we became the victims of so many other great public services that uh, utilities that should have never been the victims of privatisation. We were going into that. And so to some degree, we had the benefit of hindsight we knew exactly what the attack normally is when you're mm-hmm. privatised. Within a very short time, you know, people are saying uh, it's too labour intensive, everyone's overpaid and the union's too strong or blocks. That seems to be the three main things that most privatisations, when they want to lurch off and sort of strip the industry from fill shareholders' pockets or attack the workforce's terms and conditions, that's normally their mantra around those sort of those sort of three issues. So, you know, we knew that would be coming our way. Of course, we also in our union represent BT Telecom, so we we knew the experience they've been through with privatisation, yes, sure. the risks that this big this big collective organisation can be broken, and all its you know component parts, its services can be broken up into smaller groups, leaving people more vulnerable and leaving it open for exploitation. That's that's what can happen. So to try and protect ourselves from that, while still opposing privatisation, there was a certain reality that it was going to happen anyway in the climate at that moment in time, the political climate as well. And of course, what politically they did, which was really damaging to our industry, actually, to try and facilitate the privatisation of Royal Mail, they kept the post office in the in the public sector, yes. which people would have thought 
uh, would have protected that, but that hasn't proven to be the case either. But most successful postal organisations around the world have kept their retail and their delivery arms together and then use them to innovate around yeah. services. At this moment in time, with banks closing and everything else, for ordinary working people, I think there's, there's, there's massive opportunities that the post office should have been extending its reach. And if it had remained with Royal Mail as a post office in general, if you like, with our delivery and retail arms, I think there's so many things that, that the, the industry could have done. And, and, you know, that's still not out of the question and they could be put back together or we, we could take on board a working partnership with a post office, whatever. But, but you know, that facilitated privatisation because when it was debated, if you look at Hansard and things like that, most MPs were, were all they were banging on about was about their post office rather than their their USO, yeah. universal yeah. service. So, yeah. so the agreement, of course, it gave us, it struck us that uh, whenever unions, whether you've got a legally binding agreement or not, whenever unions go to take action, the first retort these days is to get you in court in some way and try and stop yeah. you making yeah. that action or sequestrate funds or anything else. You know, we've seen that from the miners onwards. It, the, the use of legal uh, methods to, to stop us was, was evident. So I suppose in our thinking was, how could, why haven't we got the same opportunity to stop them? So the, what the agreement gave to us was their commitment that they wouldn't break up the company, that it wouldn't be its component parts, its different business units wouldn't be sold off. And if it did or someone made that move, then we could have them in court now, which would have stopped them doing that, whether it would have stopped it long term. But it would have we would have had, you know, similar recourse to legal action as an employer has always had. So yeah. that, you know, that was the theory. And to be fair, we've been privatised now nearly seven years. Yes, we've got our problems again, but even keeping together and sustaining what we've done for seven years, I think in comparison to other privatisations, and we would say this is not to diss anybody else, it's just I think that has served us well in that regard. Well, I mean, listeners, if you look at the collective agreement, and you'll find a link to it on the companion blog to this podcast, we, I think you'll genuinely be amazed at the breadth of it. It really is belt and braces, absolutely everything bolt, bolt, bolted down, a tremendous piece of, of negotiating, if, if I may say so. But then we roll forward, and in 2018, we get to the stage where after a long campaign, almost on top of the legal agreement, there's another another big agreement, isn't there? And I mean, was that because no one anticipated where perhaps some of the holes or gaps were in the original agreement or was or did the negotiating agenda just move on and therefore a whole new set of agreements was needed? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was always going to get tested at some point. And I mean, the, the whole theory on it was that it was a test, you know, it was a plague on both our houses, if you like, you know what I mean? It yeah, was yeah. a test on, yeah. on both of us. Of, of It made you focus on getting an agreement. Was real, I mean, that's the real essence of it. Well, that's, the, that's the essence of everything, even industrial action, is to try and get an agreement. That's, well, that, yeah, it's, it's got to end in an agreement somewhere <laughs> along the line, hasn't it? Yeah, yes, of course. So, so it, it was meant to make people think twice or think about what they were doing on both sides, I suppose, in order to keep us in the right place and protect the things that we, we value dear. What I think the, the thing is, Simon, you know, figures lie and liars figure. So if someone wants to if someone wants to use something or abuse something in its spirit and intent in a courtroom, then the problem any trade union would have, that a judge is always going to side with the company, in my opinion, and will always they will find ways of doing it regardless. So if we hadn't had that agreement, they would have found ways. Don't forget, they would have said things like, well, there's an election going on, so we're going to rule you can't take industrial action. There's a pandemic going on, so if we end up in court, they're going to say, 
you know, who does it hurt most? Does it hurt the public most? Yes, it does. So we, it's not that we don't agree or disagree with the action you want to take, but we're not going to let you take it. What, the, what we've learned through those court cases is they will find any means, and we're not the only trade union that's ended up in court. I think nearly every union now that sought to take action has ended up there. So there are those that want to point the finger at the agreement, etc., and you'll never stop that. But without that agreement, we would have ended up in court, uh, yeah. as other unions yeah. have. With that agreement, I would say that's given us far more protection over the last seven years than it has given us trouble. Yeah, but, but actually, you have the agreement in 2014. It's kind of refreshed, if you like, and renewed in 2018. And then Rico Back comes along. Yeah. I mean, you know, where, I mean, where did he come from? <laughs> that, that, he was already running what they call GLS. So he, he, this is a guy who started a parcel company in Germany and then started to expand it. And then Royal Mail basically bought that company off of him uh, and kept him on to, to run it. So he became that, that wing of Royal Mail, that expanding our reach around Europe or, and elsewhere, that became what they call GLS. Now, that's made up of a number of small parcel companies in different countries in Europe. The more we've delved into it, a lot of those uh, parcel companies, it, it's been praised as being highly successful and bringing lots of money to the Royal Mail Group in terms of its profitability. But when you go down a lot of those small parcel companies, it's all the gig economy type of employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, been, there's been documentaries. There was one in Germany, uh, Verdi's told us, Verdi, the union, biggest union in Germany, told us that they ran to union, etc. There was a documentary done where a guy went in there, you know, worked in there to see what it was really like and came out describing it as modern day slavery, you know, appalling terms and conditions and stuff like that. They tried to argue that, but I think if you, it, most of the GLS is on those types of terms and conditions, which isn't for us. So I think when he got the nod to, to be the CEO of Royal Mail, I think he saw his opportunity to, one, I don't think he had any real connection to letters or the concept Mm, of USO. mm. I think what he saw was the opportunity to create this massive parcel company in the UK. But in truth, I think knew that he would have to remove the trade union. (laughs) So uh, very, you know, very sort of blatantly, but in some ways skillfully at first, it was like, oh, sorry, I didn't realise. I didn't realise there was an agreement. I didn't, you know, it was this sort of. You know, trying to form a relationship yeah. and things like that. But it became evident to us that it, it was the big fight. And, of course, that was the subject of two further ballots. Massive. Yes, folks. Yeah, was, it, was it like 90, over 90% yes on an over 80% turnout, something like that, both times? Yeah. 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 On, on a workforce of over 120,000. So yeah. through the union, we had Chris Webb running our comms, you know, the general secretary, Dave Warren. The union has... has realised that we had to win the workplace again. Mm. So here we are, we can boast about having workplace reps, but it's really how much you can act, you can get down into the workplace. So to be honest, our theory was if we was allowed to go into, if we could get into every workplace and do a union meeting face to face, which I still think is the most powerful form of communication, eyeball, eyeball, eyeball. If we could do that, then we would back ourselves to deliver a, big yes vote so basically the the campaign was well how do we do that then using mm-hmm. our modern, using the modern technologies and of course we we managed to do that we we mixed both actually we did that and we did the eyeball eyeball going around the country it was hard work but okay. well of course it is it's never it's never easy but i mean what was it something like seventy thousand members on one facebook call um, or, or on yeah. a series of facebook calls? i mean what's i mean i can i can just about imagine what it's like standing in front of seventy thousand people but having but dealing with them on that basis, that, I mean, that must there must be messages flying around all over the place. It's you know, I mean, it's just like it must be incredible. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I had the privilege of doing the uh, Durham Miners a couple of three years ago, and I think it was 200,000 there. Wow. So, <laughs> so that uh, that was pretty nerve-wracking. But no, it, I mean, it was fantastic. People, Not only that, what people were doing, of course, was downloading it and playing it in the workplace. Mm. So mm. they were playing it in canteens, you know, they were playing it to each other. They were playing them on their phones. And they, they became, it became, you know, we would send out a weekly bulletin, a written weekly bulletin for the rep to read out in the workplace. And then people would ca- come and listen to the videos. And the amount of people, who, I think they enjoyed them. I think it became like a form of their, <laughs> uh, you know, like watching EastEnders or something. They, um, <laughs> they, 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 they really sort of enjoyed it. So... The sad thing is, twice we got ourselves into that position um, and, and the company were just determined to not sit down and do a deal but try and use the legal avenues to stop mm, us. Mm. And basically, uh, break the union's heart, the heart of our members, I think. That's what they were trying to do. They want not just win the hearts and minds, they wanted to actually break him, I think. Yeah. And, of course, they haven't succeeded in doing that. And just as we'd got our last ballot result, and we would have taken industrial action. Of course, the pandemic broke. Yeah, and of course, I mean, that, that kind of changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, it, the Postal Service has always been close to the hearts of the communities that, that your members serve. Um, especially online members, shouldn't I? I'm just a CW member. Um, oh, yeah. But actually, the pandemic transformed it enormously. The whole concept of key workers, the people who are in most regular contact with most of the citizens of, of, of the country. And I think perhaps that's, that's perhaps rekindled the idea that we spoke about early in this discussion about the way in which which the postal service can reach parts of, of society no other outfit can and and there's the scope to do so much as kind of community hubs and i don't know whatever description you 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 want but in practical terms rico just went didn't he i mean eventually it seems that, that his his support just amongst in managerial and political terms just evaporated and he yeah. off he went yeah and he went and i think if I'm honest, I think he's, he probably had more the ump with the board than he did with us because I don't think the, the board or the management have shifted too far from what he was trying to drive at this moment in time. So it's, we're in a strange situation at the moment where we've got an executive chairman, temporary. Mm-hmm. We've got a temporary CEO. We're seeing a new dynamic now on shareholders using their influence mm. to try mm. and push... Uh, different dynamics but I mean on the on the impact of the pandemic I mean we very quickly got out there first and made ourselves available and and clearly said we'd serve the country you know we knew our people should be key workers and we knew the problems you'd have if you tried to take industrial action everything else so you know it was the right thing to do and our people our members became key workers and for a while there I mean, it worries me the longer it's gone on how much philosophically I thought the views of people would change, not not just at our you know, workers' level. I thought it might change the views of CEOs and companies and big finance shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. But sadly, I'm not so sure that's happened because there was a while there where, you know, I said this at the time, I think postal workers, shop workers, you know, NHS staff, they sort of became the new rock stars, didn't they? You yeah, know, it, Absolutely. So, no yeah. one was. Uh, no one really cared what any celebrity had to say about the issue. People were genuinely thanking people in the street, and mm. and had come to realise how lost society would be without these these key sort of things in our lives. But as time's gone on, you can still this certainly in our in our situation. There's still people plotting to try and break that up, to try and maximise what they what they earn out of it. And you know that b- before the pandemic. 
our, our union's view, and I've, I've, you know, I think the TUC, I think lots of unions, is that, you know, the, focusing in on the world of work has become a, is has become a major issue for for trade unions, for the right reasons. Yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly, I know Dave Wall pushes that all the time at the at whatever opportunity he can about people focusing on the on the world of work. But it, it seems, you know, because because before the pandemic, it was there's like a, a human stampede to insecurity, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, insecure jobs, pensioner poverty, you know, all these things, are there, and, they're, and they're still there. That hasn't got any better with this pandemic because this pandemic, to me, is like a war. And the reason I say that mm. is if you look at the Spanish flu in yeah. 1918, that was only two years and 50 million people died. And the impact was the gap between rich and poor got greater. So the wealth went the wrong in the wrong direction. Mm. And you had the Second World War, which spanned six years, and I think it was like 70 to 85 million people died. Yeah. And the same thing happened. But at the end of the Second World War, something in my life, which has really shaped my life and my thinking, was the Beverage Report was written, yeah. which was really about government intervention because of this real concern about the gap in wealth, where it had gone. You know, people's lives and, you know, people came back in the Second World War and were refusing to have, go back into poverty jobs and no, you know, no doctors. And yeah. and our, uh, everyone was amazed when Attlee got elected rather than Churchill. But from that, you've got the welfare state, you've got the national health system, you've got all these things. These are the, the basic bedrock that ordinary working people need. And yet this, and I thought people's thinking would change and they would realise, you know, I suppose I was hoping, maybe it was wishful thinking. But greed is still dominating the agenda, Simon. That's the problem. You're, you're right in the sense that there was there was a time when you know, especially during the, I think during the first lockdown, where actually you felt that there was a change, uh, you know, a, a change in what community meant and, and a, 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 gro- a growing consensus. And then as we've gone on, I think you're right. I mean, I know in the in the postal sector there was the there was the fright over Saturday deliveries. Then there's there was this quite bizarre thing about vehicle sharing without seeming any proper consultation or consideration all the health and safety issues the latest thing is that actually now posties will pick stuff up from you for a for for a charge um that you know that's you know interesting things but if you look at bigger issues such as the free school meal stuff and the stuff marcus rashford is doing or or the decision to cut funding from union learn these suggest that actually yeah, greed, greed, and kind of self-interest is is out there. But the point you make about beverage, beverage being written in the you know in the mists of the darkest days of our country, sort sort of thing. Where is the new beverage? Who is the new beverage? Where is the where is the where's the drive to bring people together in that consensus? That's that's a really interesting prospect. Because I've heard other people talk about COVID as being something like a war because everything is up in the air there's no certainty you can't see a month ahead let alone a year ahead at the, at the moment so mm, well, and all, the, all the restrictions on people you get the same restrictions in a war wouldn't you like you know you can't go out after a certain time of night or rationing yeah you know and all that was all that was in place in the first wave of this pandemic you know restricting how many toilet rolls people could buy or, or, or whatever so but this what interests me is the impacts are the same it seems to me and it has done all my life that it's always ordinary working people who pay the price, yeah. and and it, it shouldn't it just shouldn't be that way. So I mean, even now, where the Telegraph seems to be on a on a on a mission at the moment to slaughter this our union uh, to make us out as we've held back raw mail, we've we've held back innovation, we've done 
And this is only because I, I know I know what it is. People, shareholders have obviously seen this opportunity through this pandemic. Yeah. They know postal workers, you know, looking around to see what's happening to other people and are probably glad it's not them losing their jobs and everything else. And so it, you almost get, as you did in the Second World War, you get to the point where trade unions are like, well, if you take action here, you're, you're, that's outrageous. You know what yeah. I mean? You're not, you should be behind the national all pushing together and all this sort of sort of stuff and you would get that same thing now and we know that and it's powerful media wise it's powerful and you've got to, you've got to sort of use your life but i don't accept that i don't accept what i don't care whether it's the, the telegraph or what paper it is i don't accept it i think you know the proudest thing i've ever done is representing working people and i think you've, you've got to keep shouting and you've got to keep standing up because everything they propose for our people is worsening their current working life and that shouldn't be the case. Well, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing is, if we if we stop organising and speaking up and making the case for an alternative, if you like, if we retreat, it's not like no one's going to occupy the ground that we once stood on. People, you know, the, the kind of front line, if you like, moves further, you know, further against us. And uh, yeah, well, but why shouldn't people make you know articulate what's important to them and and, and make a claim for decent paying paying conditions? Absolutely. Yeah. When you look at it, it's not as though Postal workers' jobs that I can speak on is, you know, reasonable terms and conditions and a reasonable pension. And you know we've, we've done a new pension scheme, which is going to change legislation very soon in this country and will enable people to still get a wage in retirement but in a different way. We've innovated around pension because a wage in retirement is, is if, you're going to have, if you're going to do away with pension of poverty, poverty then that is crucial to ordinary working people, mm. wage it is crucial. You can't. I'm sorry. Hold on. That's. A, I, I, that's not because the post is just rung on the bell. They probably will do. <laughs> but you know, this this stuff is. This is. It is. It's insecurity that's that's driving. I think bad behaviours. I think it drives racism. I think it drives. You know, aggressive type of society. People, ordinary people, just want, don't they? They're not asking for the earth. They're really not yeah. asking for the earth. So. And this pandemic, you know, when people are trying to make out, well, it's got to be paid from somewhere, the money's from... We spend billions, billions of pounds as a country on things like nuclear armament. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you'll ever get a nuclear war. I think what you'll get is a test tube dropped in a London tube or something like that. Mm-hmm. This, this pandemic is surely showing, you know, the, the, the greater risk. Why would one country fire a rocket knowing they're getting one back? The money, we find we pull up the money for all of those things, and if if they were if that was laid out for people in an ordinary way and say well okay well this is how much we spent on health, this is how much we spent on nuclear arms, this is how much, look at the private companies that are absolutely milking it through this pandemic have been handed contracts probably with no tender process whatsoever by this government, put millions of pounds in shareholders' pockets, and the people delivering the service that has failed. Them poor people, they're still on the worst possible terms and conditions at the end of it. Yeah, trickle-down hasn't quite happened yet, has it? Um, (laughs) So if you could take it like a best-case scenario then, and let's say we do get back to some sort of normality, you know, what would you hope that the union could could deliver in those circumstances for for your members in the postal sector and and through that for you know for society as a whole? What would be, you know, what what's what's at the top end of the range of expectations? Aspirations, I I should say. We want the company to grow. We know the company has got to uh, innovate. 
It's got to do that. We know there's less letters being sent and they've gone through the floor during this pandemic, but we still deliver billions, by the way. Mm. So it's not that that will always go out of fashion. And I think if if you're living in a society that gets poorer, and I hope it don't, but it looks that way, then that will become more important to people. If people can't afford their phone or their internet and and everything else, then, you know, that, that may well still be important. I think we look at the USO not just as letters, Simon. See, we look at the USO as social connectivity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everything, uh, if we've got this connectivity, it should be the same for everyone at the same price, a uniform Mm. price, wherever you live. You shouldn't be discriminated against because you live by the coast or you live in a rural, you know, area. And that's what the USO protects. So the USO has always done letters and packets and parcels as well. So we're saying, you know, there should always be that connectivity, you know, so, and you should innovate around it. So, Many uh, local services have been reduced because local councils or you know uh, have to cut back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there, there must we find it hard to believe that when you've got any company, major company, looking at uh, if someone said to you, "Here you go, you've got access to every single address in this country six days a week," it's hard to believe that if there'd have been proper innovation around raw mail, proper research and development, we wouldn't be doing a lot more now than just delivering letters and parcels. Yeah. And it's it's waiting for that. I mean, when you think years ago, the post office, which was raw mail as well, but the post office in general, it had its, a massive research and development centre. And I mean, that originally it included telecoms, as you yeah. know. It was all in one. It was, it was the GPO. And, you know, that's where Alan Turing and the computer, you know, the sort of innovation that went on there. I don't think they've even got a research and development department. So I think they follow rather than, you know, we come up and develop our our own Mm. ideas. We just say, oh, you know, some other postal organisation is doing this, perhaps we should have a go at it. But if we lose it, if we lose that connectivity, and especially the concept of the universal price for that connectivity, then I think you will see uh, it it won't, social inclusion will be lost and whole communities could be lost. And it's a major point, I think, Simon. And that's that's worth fighting for, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, Terry, uh, always a pleasure, mate. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. That uh, Terry is always such good value. Tells it exactly the way it is and knows that he's getting an accurate view of his members because of that fantastic rep structure that the CW have been able to maintain. If you are curious about any of the agreements that we discussed about this figure, Rico Back, who came and went and caused mayhem while he was the CEO about the union's plans for the future of the postal network, then all the links and signposting can be found on the companion blog for this podcast, which if you go over to makesyouthink.com, you'll find it right there in the blog section of that website. What I particularly like about Terry is the way in which he links politics and industrial issues. People say, uh, political trade unionism is a dead end or, or is on the way and I, you listen to terry and you can see why he feels clearly that they fit hand in glove and the idea about a second beverage report the first beverage report of course in the mid-1940s uh, laid the foundations for the welfare state that we know and love and which still has a tremendous pull a tremendous draw for us i think as a as a as a collective in the uk despite the the cuts and the privatizations and the restructurings of the last 10 years yeah when you think about the importance of that first beverage report you get a feel for what terry's talking about when he says 
there needs to be a repeat of that sort of exercise, that sort of energy, that sort of vision as a way to build back better after COVID. Fascinating stuff. Well, that's just about it for this episode. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with the Union Jews podcast. It's been a pleasure to have your company for this past half hour or so. If you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you've got ideas for people or things that should be on future episodes, please do join the discussion. You can email us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. One thing that would be great, and that is if you could rate us on the podcast platform of your choice, it would be very much appreciated. Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal through which you can access this and 70 other trade union linked or themed podcasts. If you think we have it bad here in the UK, there are some hair raising stories from Union Jews counterparts uh, who are based in the States. So a big shout out to US Labour podcast makers and to all our listeners over there as well. LabourRadioNetwork.org is the site you need to visit. This is also the final episode of the second series of Union Jews. Time flies, doesn't it? Goodness me. I'd like to thank all my guests from the second series. And I'd like to thank you for listening, downloading, sharing and rating We will be back with three special episodes between now and Christmas, though, for your further listening pleasure. First off, we have a special about the Working River collection of songs and music from the River Thames, as told from the perspective of unions and the people who work on the river. My special guest will be the curator of that collection, Brian Denny, whose day job, by the way, is being press officer for the RMT Union, who organise, among others, people who work on the Thames. Our second special episode features the General Secretary of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, Melissa Ansel Bridges, on what that emphatic victory by Jacinda Ardern in the country's recent general election means for unions there. And finally, in our third special episode, we have Claire Chapman, the incoming chair of conciliation service ACAS, on what she sees the organisation is doing over the coming period and what she hopes will be accomplished under her tenure. Now, since 2000, the chair of ACAS has been drawn from the Labour side, the union side of this tripartite body, with Rita Donaghy, then Ed Sweeney, and then Brendan Barber, all holding the position. Claire's from the management side, having previously been HR director of, amongst others, BT and Tesco. Irrespective of your background, being chair of ACAS is a pivotal role, one of key importance for the union movement. So I'm delighted Claire has agreed to share her views with me and you, the Union Jews audience. Those three specials will be with you between now and Christmas, and you can get advanced notification of when they will drop by registering for updates at the makesyouthink.com website. Union Jews will be back for a third series early in 2021. It just leaves me to say a big thank you to Terry for joining us on today's podcast, to you for listening and for all your support, comments, tweets, retweets and comments during this past series to say whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, whatever tier you're in or maybe in. Stay safe, and I'll see you around. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.